Right, turn to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, while you're turning there, I wanted to let you know, you may have heard this earlier this morning, if you are thinking about the possibility of maybe, perhaps, going into full-time ministry one day, we would love to have you come out on Tuesday night at the Anderson campus at 6 p.m. I'm going to be there. I I would love to share with you my story of leaving engineering and hearing the call of God and moving into ministry. There will be others who will talk about going to seminary or going into missions. So even if you're not sure yet, you just think maybe that could be a direction God is calling me, we'd love to see you Tuesday night at 6 Okay, so we're looking at Genesis 11, the story of Babel. As I put together this sermon, I made an assumption at the very beginning. I am assuming that most all of us in this room are relatively good people. We're, relatively speaking, pretty good people. We're honest, we're hardworking, we're kind, we're helpful. We're Aggies, after all. We don't lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. So, I'm assuming that you're a relatively good person. So the last couple weeks in Genesis, when we saw Cain murder his brother and then humanity descend into the pits of brutality and violence, you may have left feeling like, well, that passage doesn't apply to me. That won't be the case this morning. As we look at the story of Babel, you will find no murder in this story. You'll find uh, no violence. You'll find no theft. You will actually find no immorality of any kind in this story of Babel. Actually, what the builders do at Babel, they're going to build a city and a tower. There's nothing inherently sinful about any of that. God doesn't have a problem with building cities and towers. Where did God's glory dwell in the Old Testament? In a city, in Jerusalem, in the tallest building in the city, the temple. So God has no problem with building cities and towers. What these people do at Babel is not inherently sinful. They're going to build a city and a tower. In fact, they're going to work really hard to do it. They're going to work together and bring great creativity and innovation to this project to build this great tower. I think that in the eyes of our world, if if they were to meet these builders at Babel, our world would conclude these are good people. These are hardworking, responsible people, just like most of us. If you're working hard to get a degree, you're working hard to build your business, you're working hard to win the game, you're working hard to build your family, you're, you're a good person, a responsible person, but what we're going to learn as we study the story of Babel is that doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still wrong. They're going to do the right thing. They're going to do a good thing, but for the wrong reason. Just like so many of us do all the time. We, we do good things. We do the right kind of things, but we often do them for the wrong reason. And Babel is proof that when you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it is still worthy of God's judgment. So let's look at this story. Let's discover the reasons, the motives that moved these builders in Babel. Look with me starting in chapter 11, verse 1. Moses says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So we don't know how much time has passed. 
Since our last sermon, when we were studying Noah and the flood, we don't know how much time passed between that and this story. It could have been as little as five generations, maybe hundreds of generations. We don't know how much time has passed. What we do know is at this point in human history, humanity is united. They they travel together and they settle together in the plain of Shinar. We don't know for sure where Shinar was. We think that it's in modern-day Iraq on the banks of the Euphrates River. They, They travel together and settle together. They live together because they all speak the same language. At this point in our history, there were not multiple languages, just one language. They all spoke with the same vocabulary. As a result, they understood one another perfectly. There were not distinct nations or races or ethnicities. All of humanity was united, one group, all together. All united, working together. You notice, there's no strife between human beings. They work together to build this great tower. So what you really have here at the beginning of Genesis 11, you have humanity at its best, humanly speaking. From a human perspective, humanity is at its best. No warfare, no strife, no ethnic division. There's everybody working together, understanding one another, working together to build this great tower. This is the the dream of every liberal humanist right here in Genesis 11. Humanity united together to do something great for the betterment of the human race. And they do something great. They work together and, and innovate. You may not notice what's going on here. It says that they baked bricks That seems small to us. This is actually a huge invention in the history of the human race. They lived in this plain where there were no stones to build with. There were no trees to cut down and build with. So they look around and they notice, hey, there's a a lot of clay in this soil. So let's cut it out and mold it and bake it into these bricks we can build with. That's a huge innovation. They start building them together, but then they think, well, man, if we we build it really tight, it's going to get wobbly. and, And if a storm comes, it'll knock it over. So they look around and they find tar asphalt, this waterproof concrete they can use to put the tower together. What a brilliant idea. Humanity is working together. They are working hard. They are innovating. They are creating to build this city and this massive tower. As best we can tell, it would have looked something like this. A ziggurat, a a stepped tower. You can build them incredibly tall. It would have been huge. And so at this point in the story, all of humanity is working together to do something great. Now, what could be wrong with that? Well, the the sin is not in their actions. It's in their motives. They're doing a good thing for wrong reasons. What are the two sinful reasons that motivated these tower builders in Babel? Well, the first thing that motivated them, their first sinful motive that led them actually to build the tower, this is why they built the tower, it tells us in the text that they built this tower to find significance independent of God. That's what motivated them to build the tower. Look again at verse 4. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Let us make for ourselves a name. Let's make a name for ourselves. What's going on there? It would be uh, like a, a great athlete or a great musician saying, I want to be famous. I want the world to know my name. I want to be remembered as a great athlete or, or great musician. That's the idea here. They want significance in life. They don't want to be forgotten. They want to do something great so that people will know their name. Now, just so you know, that that quest for significance is actually not bad. 
God designed you to desire significance. He didn't create you to live a mediocre life. He created you to live a great life, a significant life. He created within you a a craving for significance. And so these tower builders, they build this tower to make a great name for themselves. But here's the funny part. They want to make a great name for themselves, but they, they already had a great name. Think about it. Back in Genesis chapter one, just 11 chapters before, Genesis chapter one, when God created humanity, what did he say? He said, let us make mankind in our image. Humanity was made with a great name. Humanity was created with great significance. Unlike everything else in the universe, only human beings are made in the image of God. What does that mean? We alone, we uniquely are able to image or display or or reveal to the world how great and good God is. That's what makes you significant. That's your name. You are an image bearer of the almighty creator. You were designed to take his glory into the world to show everyone how great God is. That is your name. You you don't have to work for significance. You were born with significance as a bearer of the image of God. That is your great name. But the the builders at Babel, they were not content with that God-given name. They were not content with that God-given significance. They really would prefer not to make God's name great. They're really not interested in making God famous. They would much rather make themselves famous. They want to be known as great. That's what the tower is about. They're not interested in, in glorifying God with their lives. They want to glorify themselves. They want all of human history, for the rest of human history, to look at this immortal tower and remember how powerful and smart they are. This was an attempt to make themselves famous. Not content with the significance God gives as image bearers, they wanted to make a name for themselves. So it tells us in the text that they built this tower with the explicit purpose of reaching into the heavens. In other words, they want to build this tower as high as God is so they can rise to his level. They want to make themselves equal with God. Now, what story should that take us back to? Genesis 3. When Satan showed up to tempt Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, what did he promise? Eat the fruit and your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The sin in Genesis 3 is the same as the sin in Genesis 11. It's the sin of pride. What is pride? Pride is an inflated view of self. You are not content to see yourself as a creature made in the image of God. No, you want more than that. You want to be God. You want to be the famous one. So you inflate your perspective upon yourself. You you inflate your opinion of yourself. That's what the tower builders did at Babel. They built this great tower to the heavens because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to glorify themselves. Now, This idea of pride. Sometimes pride expresses itself in the desire to build a tower up to the heavens so you can replace God. Usually, though, pride expresses itself in far more subtle ways in our life. So here's what pride looks like in our lives. Pride is when you do something good, like you do well on a test, or you do well and close a sale at work. Pride is that thing that knocks on your heart and wants you to take credit for the good thing you just did. Pride is that temptation when you do well in a game and you hear the shouts of the crowd. Pride is that temptation to latch onto that and believe the adulation of the masses. 
Pride is when you go and volunteer in the nursery at church and then you come out of the nursery and you feel better about yourself and look down on everyone who didn't volunteer in the nursery. That's pride. Pride is when you put money in the offering and you look down on those who didn't. Pride is when you go to breakaway and you leave breakaway feeling more holy than all the students who didn't go to breakaway. That's pride. It always hits us when we do something good. These tower builders, they did something incredibly good, magnificent, built the biggest tower that had ever been made. Pride hits. It's right in the center of that, just like it is for us. Every time we do something good with our lives, pride is there knocking on the door, trying to convince us to find our significance, our worth in what we have accomplished rather than the image of God. So right here this morning, as I preach to you, pride is right here with me. Like every other preacher preaching this morning, Pride is knocking on the door, trying to convince us to find our worth in the size of our congregation. That's every Sunday morning I preach. Pride knocks on the door because I am human. And like every human, pride is always there. It wants to spoil everything good you do. It wants to lead you to look at that good thing you did and find your significance in it instead of in the image of God. So these tower builders, they build this great tower out of a desire to glorify themselves, out of a desire to make a name for themselves. That's the first reason it was wrong. Nothing inherently wrong with building a tower. It is wrong if you're doing it to make a name for yourself. So that was the first sinful motive. Second sinful motive they had. So they built the tower to make a name for themselves. They built the city to find security independent from God. That was the motivation for the city. Now, there's nothing wrong with with building a city, nothing inherently wrong with that, but this city was sinful. Why? Go back to chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, what did God want humanity to do? Well, not settle together and build a city. He wanted them to spread out, to to fill the whole earth with, with his image. But there's a problem with God's command. It's risky. It's risky to to spread out, especially in the ancient world. Safety is found in numbers. Safety is found in high city walls. It can protect you from dangerous things. It can protect you from storms. There is great risk in obeying God's command here. What you need to understand is that that building a city, that was, from a human perspective, the wise thing to do. That was the safe bet, far safer than spreading out, dividing up. There was great risk in trying to obey God. They would rather play it safe. Rather than trust God to provide security, they would rather take matters into their own hands so they disobey God and build a city. Now, for us, we are not tempted to find security in a city. Cities really aren't a a source of safety, per se, for us. We find security in other things, like like bank accounts and 401ks and insurance policies and a good degree from A&M and a stable career. Those are the places that we are tempted to go to find our security. Now, notice there's nothing wrong with any of those things, just as there was nothing wrong with, with building a city. Where it goes wrong is when you turn to that thing for your security in life. You were designed to find security in one place, in the arms of Almighty God. When you turn to anything else for your security, then you make that thing an idol. 
So a flush bank account, nothing wrong with that as long as you're not finding your security there. If you turn to your bank account for security, then you have put it in the place of God. You've made an idol out of it. I would venture to say that in modern America, uh, financial security and personal safety are two of our predominant idols. Nothing wrong with those things, but we turn to them to find our security, our safety, and bank accounts, 401ks, insurance policies, an education, a job, and then it becomes an idol. And when personal safety and financial security becomes an idol in your life, it will always lead you to sin. It will lead you to to make an excuse not to obey God, just like it did the, the builders at Babel. He said, go. He said, scatter. They said, no, we're not willing to take that risk. So God has said to us, Jesus himself commanded us, end of Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go be involved in missions, taking the gospel to the world, but that's risky. International travel, it's inherently dangerous, and usually you're going to a country that's not as safe as the U.S. I just, I can't take that risk, that's too dangerous. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us to give generously to the church and to missions, but give generously. I, I need to save my money for retirement and, and for healthcare. It's crazy expensive. I can't afford to give in obedience to God. God says, make disciples of younger believers. Invest your life to raise up the next generation of followers of Jesus. But that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of effort. I, I really need to spend my time and effort building my, my degree, getting good grades, building a name for myself so I disobey. Whenever you make idols, of personal safety and financial security, it will always become an excuse for sin. It will lead you to to not obey God in order to protect yourself, in order to build security and safety in your life. What we need to understand, something I was wrestling with this week, why does God want them to go out? Why does he want them to spread out when it would be so much safer to build a city? Well, because God wants us to take risks. God did not create you to live a safe life. He created you to live a great life, a life where you step out in bold obedience, risking great things to do great things for God. He did not create you to play it safe. He wants us to be willing to let go of these idols of of personal safety and financial security so we can boldly follow him. Again, nothing wrong with saving money, buying insurance, getting an education, unless you let them become idols in your life. If you are looking to those things to provide security, then they are an idol, and that's sin. God is our security. He alone can provide the security we crave. So these builders at Babel, they don't do a bad thing. Building a city, building a tower, nothing inherently wrong with that. It's wrong for them because their motives were wrong. They built the city and the tower because they wanted to find significance and security independent of God. God didn't like that. So God showed up. Shows up in verse 5. Look with me. God shows up in verse 5 of chapter 11. Shows up to reveal to them and to all of us how foolish it is when we seek significance and security in anything other than him. Look with me what happens, verse five. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. 
The Lord said, behold, there are one people and they all have the same language and this is what they began to do and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God responds to humanity's sin. The first thing that he does is he comes down to humble them. God shows up to humble the human race. Verse five, you may not realize this in in your first reading of it, it actually is full of sarcasm. Verse five is a, it's a joke verse. It's an ironic verse. It's, it's full of sarcasm because remember, this, what, what were the, these human beings doing? They were trying to build a tower up to heaven. So in their eyes, this tower reached to the heavens. But, but then we get God's view of the tower. What does it look like in God's eyes? Who, who is in heaven? Well, he looks down. He doesn't see a thing. You can't even see the tower. It's, it's so tiny. Now, that's not a verse about limitations in God. He is omniscient. He knows and sees all things. It is a joke about how puny their tower is. The language basically pictures God looking down from heaven and thinking, wow, I, I can't quite see it. So let me get down on, on my knees and let me get down on my hands and, and let me press my face. Oh, that tower. <laughs> That's what you mean, right? That's what you're building. That's what you put all of your effort into. That's the tower that reaches to the heavens. Sorry, I I couldn't even see it. It was so small. God is showing them how foolish they are. They thought they could build a tower to the heavens, and yet compared to God and to God's creation, their tower was nothing. This makes me think a little bit of what's going on, I'm sure, today, just a few miles north of here. All those men working on the $450 million remodel of Kyle Field. I, myself, I'm very excited about it. I was watching the cameras this week because it's fun to see. I was actually at the game last week, so it's, it's crazy to see pictures of the inside of the field, and the field's gone, and half the stadium is gone around the field. It's amazing to watch. I'm really excited about the thought of going to a game one day when it's rebuilt. But let's not fool ourselves here. When Kyle Field is finished it will still be not even a grain of sand compared to the works of God. It will be nothing compared to what he has made. So it's great to build stadiums as long as you don't think it makes you great because it doesn't. It's nothing. It's insignificant compared to what God has done. So Isaiah tells us, Chapter 40, it is he, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah is looking at the universe God has made, this immense universe and saying, even this huge universe, it is small compared to God. So how tiny are the things that we have made? Completely and utterly insignificant. God is showing us how foolish we are when we take pride in our accomplishments. When we think that's what makes us great compared to God, no, it doesn't. So God shows them how foolish they are, and then God humbles them by bringing their great building project to an end. They're in verse 8. He brings it to an end. Project is done. He scatters the human race, so they all leave it, leave it incomplete. It's actually interesting. I can't tell you where this tower is today because it doesn't exist anymore. 
They abandoned the project and nature kicked in and now this grand tower, this great city is nothing more than dust in the deserts of Iraq. That's all that's left. This great city, God has humbled them. So the result is is that the city takes on a new name. Now it is called Babel, which means to confuse. This is where mankind fell into confusion because we worship what we could do. What you see in this story is that every time we try to build a name for ourselves, every time we seek significance independent of God, God shows up and humbles us. He promised that he would. Actually, multiple times through scripture, God says this. This is one of the times, 1 Peter 5. God is opposed to the proud. When you try to build a name for yourself independent of God, God is opposed to that. He is going to show up because he loves you too much to let you try to find significance anywhere other than in him. He's not okay with that. He shows up to humble you. He shows up to show you how foolish it is to look for significance or security independent of him. So God shows up to humble you. He's done that many times in my life. I've always struggled with pride, so I've had many opportunities for God to come down and show me what an idiot I am. Um, The most painful of those was actually my senior year here at A&M. So my sophomore and junior years, I volunteered to lead Texas A&M solar car team. We built a solar car, raised, yeah, I know, I'm such a nerd, but at the time it seemed really cool. Um, So we raised like $150,000 and I put in 1,700 hours outside of class. I added up 1,700 hours leading this team of about 100 students from all these disciplines. We built a solar car from scratch and took it and raced it across the nation. We actually did really well, competed against 54 other universities. We placed fourth beat a lot of schools with multi-million dollar budgets. UT didn't even qualify, so that, that felt very good. Um, so we came back from doing really well, better than A&M had ever done. I come back to campus floating on cloud nine. I, I'm just sure that, that this is finally going to be what makes everyone know my name. This is what's going to bring me a great reputation on campus. Uh, we did great, so companies are going to call. I'm gonna get a great job. My life is looking up, and none of that happened. Came back to A&M and, and figured out, wish I would have known this a couple years ago, um, nobody really cares about solar cars. So <laughs> no one knew my name. That wasn't going to happen. Uh, but I came back and also no companies called. I was sure they would, but, but this thing, the Asian economic crisis hit while we were off on the race. No companies were calling because the entire world economy tanked. And so I didn't get any of the things that I wanted. And then God really brought the lesson home to me. One year after we finished the car, I went back to the lab where we built it just to take a little tour, just to walk around. And I walked through the lab and got to the back where everything was just kind of covered in dust. And and there was my car covered in dust up on a scaffold, Uh, except it wasn't all of my car. It was actually only the, the husk of my car because someone had come along and scrapped it for spare parts and used it in other projects that students were doing. So one year after my 1,700 hours invested, there was nothing left. And that was the moment where God said to me, Blake, there is your babble. Now, there was nothing wrong with building that car. There's nothing wrong with building the car. It would have been good for me to build that car if I was doing it to glorify God or to grow or to learn or figuring out how to use my skills to please him. But that's not why I built it. I built it to make a name for myself. I built it because I wanted people to respect me and look up to me. That's what made it sinful. And so as I sat there looking at the wasted husk of all of my work, weeping inside, I realized if I give my life to building a name for myself, I am wasting myself. 
What a complete waste. Because I did it for me. I did it for my name. And God's not okay with that. So God came down and he humbled me. He showed me how foolish it is to seek significance anywhere other than in him. That's what he did to the builders at Babel. He came down and humbled them. He showed them how foolish it was to seek significance in anything other than him. So the first thing he does is he humbles them. The second thing that he does is he restrains them. He restrains them. Look with me at verse 6 again. Verse 6, God says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. God laments. Humanity working together, they have done this, built a huge tower. If this is what they can already do, then there is no limit to the evil that they can work. Now, now God isn't afraid for himself here. He's not freaking out. Oh my gosh, they're going to take my place. He's afraid for the human race. If left unchecked, he sees that that our sin will be boundless. There is no limit to the evil we will do if it's left unchecked. And so God shows up to, to take away the tool that allowed humanity to work together to build this tower. They all spoke the same language that allowed them to work together in perfect harmony to, to bring all of their skills to bear on this project. God simply takes away that, that shared language, that harmony, that unity. He just snaps his fingers and boom, it's gone. Imagine how, how scary that must have been. In that moment, they, they had never known anything but one language. They didn't know what it meant to speak different languages. So just imagine you're, you're in your daily status report meeting with the other builders. You're all reporting on how your part of the tower is going. You're all kind of giddy with excitement because it's way ahead of schedule. But all of a sudden, as Bob is reporting on his side of the tower, all of a sudden the words coming out of his mouth stop making sense to you. All of a sudden, they start sounding like gibberish. They sound like babble. That's actually where this word comes from. So you think, what's going on with Bob? And you look at your neighbor and you ask her, what's going on with Bob? But she just looks at you in shock. And then she starts speaking and you don't understand the words coming out of her mouth. It's gibberish too. Not the same gibberish coming out of Bob's mouth. Different gibberishes. Now, imagine how scary that would be if you had never seen anything like that. It would be a little bit like when you go to a foreign country and you hop in a taxi and all of a sudden realize the taxi driver doesn't speak your language and you're wondering how well have I told this taxi driver where I want to go? Am I going to end up in an abandoned warehouse somewhere? I really hope this works out. It's very fearful to be in a foreign country, unable to communicate. Well, that's what everyone experienced on the day when God came down. There was no translator to smooth things over because these languages, they're all brand new. They don't understand what everyone else is saying. And so they run out of their status report meeting and they try to find anyone else who speaks their language. They find a few people. And and these these groups of people who speak the same language, they band together and then they run away. They get out of there because it is crazy and they don't know what's going on. And so the human race is divided and scatters over the face of the planet and leaves the tower unfinished. Now, when you first look at that, it sure sounds like a pretty harsh judgment from God. God sows fear in their hearts and spreads them out. He divides the human race. This actually, this event will be the the genesis of all nations, all races, all ethnicities, all cultures. This is when they divide. So this event is the, the basis of all racism, all ethnic strife, all warfare. It all comes from this. So you look at this and think to yourself, man, this is really harsh what God is doing. This is really bad. No, it's not. It's actually really good. 
Because what God understood is that we are all sinners, and so if you put all of us in a room working together, what are we gonna make? A whole lot of sin. That's all we will ever do when we unite together through human effort for human ends. It will always result in sin. That is the the great fatal flaw of liberal humanism. This idea that if we can all just get past our differences and band together, one human race, working together for the betterment of society, it will make the world so much better. No, it won't. If you could snap your fingers and take away everything that divides us and make all of the human race one again, where would we go? Right back to Babel. What you learn from this story is that world peace without the prince of peace at the center of it always leads to sin. Always. God knows that. And so in grace, he divided us up. He would no longer allow us to unite together because he knew the more we unite, the more sin we can accomplish. He divided us up so that we could not reach those same levels of evil. This judgment is gracious. God protects us by restraining our sin. But here's the really great news. Babel didn't end here. God did not let the judgment at Babel have the final word on the unity of the human race. The third thing that God is doing today and will do in the future, God rebuilds. God is rebuilding what we lost at Babel. The secret to world peace That if you want world peace, you have to have the Prince of Peace at the center of it. If God is at the center of our unity, then righteousness is the result. If he's not at the center of it, sin is only ever the result. And so God himself has begun to step down into the human race. He took on human flesh and became one of us to begin this great project of rebuilding us into one united people centered on Jesus Christ. You saw the beginning of that rebuilding program actually in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. That was the first day of the church. That's when the church began. Do you know the story? Kind of crazy what happens. Bunch of believers sitting in a room, Holy Spirit falls upon them, and what do they begin to do? Begin to speak in tongues, right? Begin to share the gospel in all these languages that they don't know. And, And the result is that all these people in Jerusalem who speak all these different languages, they hear the gospel in their own native language and they come running. And 3,000 people are saved that day. That is God peeling back Babel. Just a little bit, just for one day to show us what's coming. That's what we will have one day. When we stand with God in heaven, we will no longer be divided We will once again be one unified, harmonious human race united around the worship of our king. That's what we sung about this morning in the book of Revelation. You see this event multiple times spelled out in Revelation. Chapter seven has one of them. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the end of Babel right there. When God once again unites all of the human race around worship. That's what unites us together. And then it's interesting, what does God do at the end of this book? Once he's united us all together, what does he do? He builds a city. 
He steps down and he builds a new city, the new Jerusalem. And at the center of this new Jerusalem, a great towering throne that God himself sits on. The new Jerusalem is proof to us. Building cities isn't bad. The problem with their city was God wasn't at the center of it. When God is at the center of your city, then everything is perfect. That is where you will live forever. In the city that God has built with himself at the center of it, showering us with his love and glory. When you look at Revelation, where you see where history is headed, when you see what God is going to do, here's the tragedy of Babel. Here's the tragedy of Genesis 11. Why did these builders gather together to make a city and a tower? Because they wanted to find significance and security apart from God. When God is the one and only source of lasting significance and security. They turned away from the one source. They turned away from a God who who wasn't asking them to earn or, or work or build significance or security. He gave it to them. And that's what I want you guys to know. That's what I want you to walk away with. Most important thing in this message, the message I wish I could take back to myself 18 years ago as I built that car. I wish I could tell myself, Blake, the significance and security in life that you crave, it is not something you have to earn. It's a gift. It's a gift that God himself wants to give to you. It's a gift that God has made possible through Jesus Christ. The moment you trust in Jesus, you receive infinite significance. You are now a child of God. You will forever be a brother or sister of Jesus Christ. Your life could not be more significant than it already is. And you receive infinite security. You are in the family of the almighty God. He will let nothing come between you and him. If you've trusted in Jesus, there's nothing you need to do to make yourself more significant and more, or more secure. It doesn't matter what the world says about your significance. You are already infinitely significant. It doesn't matter what the, your bank account says about your security. You are already infinitely secure in the arms of Almighty God. That is simply a truth you need to believe. Despite what the world says to us, we already have infinite significance and infinite security, not because we earned them, but because God gave them to us as a free gift through Jesus Christ. That's a truth we need to believe, but even knowing that truth, even for those of us who know and believe that truth, it is still hard to resist the allure of pride. Pride is there every time we do something good. Knocking on the door, trying to convince us to take credit for what we have done, to find significance in the good thing that we just did. So I want to end with just a couple really practical steps that I have put in practice in my own life to try to resist this temptation of pride. First thing that I do is I offer to God a short prayer. Every time I'm going to do something significant, like preach a sermon, teach a class, write something, lead a meeting, whatever it might be, I offer to God a very short, simple little prayer. Same prayer every time. It's actually the same prayer I've said every Sunday morning before every service that I've preached in the last six years. This prayer, God, not for my pride nor my despair, but for your glory and the good of your people. Not for my pride or my despair because every sermon I preach is going to take me to one of those two places without God's help. There's not been a single Sunday that I have ever preached to you guys, gotten in my car, and not been tempted towards one of those two directions. If the sermon went well in my eyes, then it's pride knocking on the door. 
the sermon went poorly in my eyes, then it's self-pity knocking on the door. Now, the jury is still out on this morning. We'll see how I end it. But I can absolutely guarantee you I will get in my car in a little bit, and one of these will knock on my heart. Either the temptation towards pride or the temptation towards despair. Because I'm human, I'm sinful. And so those temptations are always there. And so before I preach any sermon or teach any class, I whisper this prayer to God, not for my pride nor my despair, but God, for your glory and the good of your people, because that's the only thing that will last. Your glory and the good of your people, that's all that matters. So God, let it be for that. Please protect me from my pride and my self-pity. And let this thing that I'm doing, this good thing, be only ever for your glory and the good of your people. I encourage you, before every test you take, before every project you present, before every sale you close, before everything good you do with your life, turn to God and offer a short prayer. It doesn't have to be those words. It's not a magic pill. But offer to God simple words. God, let this not be for me. Let it not be for my name, for my significance, for my security. Let it be for you and the good of your people. So a short prayer that you can offer to God when you struggle. Second thing that I encourage you to do is join me in memorizing this helpful verse from Psalm 45, verse 17. The psalmist says, I will cause your name, that is God's name, to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. What I see in this verse when I memorize it and study it, what I learn from it is hard work and ambition are not bad. It's not bad to be ambitious. It's not bad to work hard so long as your hard work and ambition are focused on the right thing, on the glory of God, on making his name great in the world. Then ambition is good. If it's about God being famous, then hard work is good. And so I encourage you, I invite you to memorize this verse with me and meditate on it. Say it to yourself. When pride comes knocking or when self-pity comes knocking, say this verse to yourself and remember it is not about me. That is the lie of both pride and self-pity. They're focused on me. That's not what life is about. It's about God. It's about his reputation. It's about the fame of Jesus Christ in our community and in our world. If that's where your ambition is directed, if you are studying in school and building solar cars and building businesses and building bank accounts for the glory of God to make his name famous, then it is good and it will last for eternity. But we need God's help to do that. So let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that you are great beyond anything that we can imagine. You are so mighty and infinite. You are so powerful and so absolutely sovereign that all of our attempts to make a name for ourselves are absolutely pathetic compared to you. Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you are gracious to us. We praise you that when these tower builders built their city in Babel, you did not show up and crush them. Instead, in grace, you humbled them and then divided them to protect them from themselves and to lead them back to you. And Lord, we look forward to the day that we sung about this morning where we will all stand as one before your throne and we will no longer be looking at ourselves in pride or in self-pity. We will only completely be looking at you and at your son, all united together singing your praises, how we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, Lord, we are a people who struggles with pride. 
We struggle with the temptation to find our significance and our security in what we do and in what we have. We pray, Father, that you would convict us. We pray that you would humble us. When we act in pride, we pray that you would show up and put us on our knees so that we might turn back to you to find significance and security in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would send us out of here a humble people who would go into this community lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that in everything we do that we would work hard, that we would work with ambition, but ambition that is dedicated to the name of Christ to making him famous. I pray that all of our work would be for the fame of Christ. Help us to glorify him with our words, with our actions, and with our motives. In his name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys.